even though David goes into the land of Israel's enemies with a lack of faith, with a lack of confidence in God, as God always does in grace, he uses even David's sinful decisions for good. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current 12-part series titled An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom is undertaking a sweeping overview of the Old Testament from the biblical canon, beginning with the universal scope of Genesis to the writings of the prophets. Today, Tom will study one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, leading up to the establishment of the monarchy. And you'll be reminded that through it all, God remains sovereign and in control of all nations and events throughout all of history. And he chooses to use the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Let's join Tom Pennington right now to discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We continue our study of Israel's history, and we come to the end of that long, dark night, 300 years, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. There was no central government, and so the tribes were constantly at war, without question, the darkest period in Israel's history. We come out of the period of the judges and into the period of the monarchy. Now, let me remind you that when you look at Old Testament history, there are essentially nine major movements or scenes in Old Testament history. The first is universal dealings in Genesis 1 through 11. Depending on when you believe the the creation of the world was, depending on whether or not you believe there are gaps in the genealogies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, somewhere between 4,000 B.C., a creation date, and no further back, then say 20,000, most conservative would say somewhere around 10,000 would be the outside. So somewhere between 4 and 10,000 B.C. was creation to the time of Abraham in 2166. That is covered in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. The patriarchal period follows Genesis 12 through 50. It covers from the time of Abraham in 2166 and the calling of Abraham there in Genesis 12 to the death of Joseph in 1804 B.C. 400 years are covered by one chapter, and that's the slavery in Egypt. It's simply described and alluded to in Exodus chapter 1, from the death of Joseph until the Exodus in 1446 B.C. Followed, the fourth movement is the Exodus under Moses, and that covers the four books of the Pentateuch, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, beginning in Exodus 2 and running all the way through the end of the Pentateuch. That covers a period of 40 years through the wilderness wanderings and the children of Israel gathering there in Deuteronomy on the plains outside of Jericho, ready to go into the promised land. Under Joshua, you have the conquest and division of Canaan from 1406 B.C. to about 1350 around his death, They served, Israel did, they served God all the days of Joshua and those who survived him, but then things began to turn, and we entered the period of the Judges, covered by the books of Judges and Ruth and 1 Samuel 1 to 8, 
that period, 300 terrible years, runs down to 1051 B.C. That's followed by the monarchy that we are going to look at tonight, and then ultimately the Babylonian exile and the restoration period, which we will examine in coming weeks. So those are the nine major movements. Tonight, we're going to look at the monarchy. Now, understand that the purpose of 1 Samuel, where the monarchy begins and is described for us, is a historical account of the beginning of the Israelite monarchy. It is there politically to serve as a record of the establishment of the monarchy and as an apologetic from Samuel for both his contemporaries and for the future, explaining why they began with one dynasty and the very next king was from a different dynasty. It also records the rise of the prophetic office. It points out the reality that God alone was the supreme king and any government has to function under his authority. And theologically, of course, it shows that we need a perfect king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will someday come. For 300 years, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The last judge and the only national judge was a man named Samuel. Here is an outline of 1 Samuel. Samuel is described in his ministry as a judge and as a prophet in the first seven chapters, Saul in 8 to 15, and David in 16 to 31. I want us to begin in Samuel 9 because that introduces us to the seventh great movement of Old Testament history, the monarchy. Now, the monarchy began in 1051 and ran all the way down to 586 B.C., nearly 500 years in Judah in the south. There was a king in Israel. This period of Israel's history is recorded in 1 Samuel 9, running all the way through 2 Kings 25, and it's also recorded in 1 and 2 Chronicles. The question is, what makes a monarchy? What makes the rule by kings, the rule by one, that's what monarchy means, mono meaning one, and the Greek word for ruler, monarchy, rule by one, what makes a monarchy distinct from all other forms of government? It's the principle of succession. When a king dies, the son that he has chosen automatically succeeds him. And that's what God put into place in Israel. Understand, though, that Yahweh is still king of Israel. In the past, he had mediated that rule through individuals personally selected, one by one in each case. And now, with the monarchy, God will mediate his rule through family succession, through sons. Now, there are two distinct periods of the monarchy in Israel. There's the, the united monarchy. By united, we mean that the kings ruled over all 12 tribes of Israel. And that is followed by the divided monarchy. And by divided, we mean that the 12 tribes were split or divided into two separate kingdoms with two separate kings. Normally, they're referred to as the north. Ten tribes were in the north called Israel, sometimes Samaria, and two tribes were in the south under a separate king, and they're generally called Judah. They were Judah and Benjamin. So that's the divided monarchy. 
Israel split up and ruled by two separate kings. Tonight, I want us to look at the united monarchy. The united monarchy begins in 1 Samuel 12 and runs all the way through 1 Kings 11. It consists of three kings from two different dynasties, Saul, David, and Solomon. If you want to remember the united monarchy, it's in three names, Saul, David, and Solomon. And it's very convenient because each of those men ruled 40 years. So 120 years is the united monarchy. Each king rules for that approximate 40-year period. Let's begin, of course, with Saul. He began to rule in 1051. He ruled to 1011 B.C. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was certainly the people's choice. Therefore, God said, make Saul king because he's the one they would choose given a chance. He gave them a king after their own heart. And Saul began well. But because of two very specific acts of rebellion and disobedience, God determined to replace this king. The two acts of rebellion were the sacrifice at Gilgal, recorded in 1 Samuel 13. You remember when Samuel didn't come and the people were getting uneasy, and so Saul takes the office of priest into his own hands and makes a sacrifice to mollify the people. The other was the sparing of Agag and the Amalekites and the spoil. They were utterly to destroy the Amalekites, and Saul failed to do it. He's confronted, you remember, in that famous uh, confrontation by Samuel, what means this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And Saul's response is, well, the people wanted to keep some spoil. And that's when Saul is reminded that the Lord has greater delight in obedience than in sacrifice. As a result, by the way, from that day, from the day Samuel confronts Saul about sparing the Amalekites, from that day on, Samuel abandoned Saul. He never saw him again. You can read that in chapter 15, verse 35. As a result of these sins, Saul's dynasty, his house is the way it's described. Your house, God will often say. He means by that your dynasty. Your dynasty is rejected in favor of a man after my own heart. This is how it's written in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And verse 13, Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So from this point, Saul knew that it was God's will to replace him because of his disobedience. But he refused to accept this and to acknowledge God's sovereign purpose, and he immediately became insanely jealous the very first time he perceived a threat to his throne and to his dynasty. From that day, Saul distrusted David. He became convinced that David would be his replacement and sadly, his contempt, or his distrust rather, grew to contempt, and contempt became a settled, murderous rage. And Saul, the king, actually sets out to kill one of his loyal subjects. 
Saul's first attempts to kill David were in the privacy of the palace. Twice he tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. It's recorded in chapter 18, verses 10 through 11. Then Saul reconsiders the potential ramifications of actually murdering one of his staff, and he sets out to kill David by stealth. There are several plots that he tries to work out in order to get David killed and out of the picture, no longer a threat to his kingdom and to his son Jonathan taking over as his successor. So Samuel records a number of Saul's attempts to kill David, and you can read them there in Samuel. But what's amazing about it is Samuel also records for us in 1 Samuel 19.11 through 21.9 a record of those who defended David and sought to protect his life from Saul's attempts. And it's really a remarkable list. You have Michael, Saul's daughter, and David's wife. She acknowledges David's innocence, and she tries to protect David from Saul, her own father. Samuel and the Lord both protect David at one point from Saul's murderous rage. Jonathan protects David. Now, this is a remarkable situation to think about because Jonathan is in line to be the next king. There's also another wrinkle that usually we don't get from flannel graph. Jonathan usually is presented in this friendship with David they're presented as peers, roughly the same age, two boys. I'm not going to take you through the, the details of how I get here, but there, there are clear details in the text that show that Jonathan could not have been David's age, and in fact, he was probably about 30 years older than David. And the way we know that is because he was already involved in Saul's army and leading a group of men when David is born. And so here he is, 30 years older than this young man, the next in line to receive the throne, and yet Jonathan is defending David and trying to rescue David from Saul's murderous attempts. Ahimelech, the high priest, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, also comes to David's defense. Now, by recording these incidents, the prophet makes it clear that those best in a position to know David's guilt or innocence and those in authority in Israel all defended him and proclaimed his innocence. That's key. After these episodes, David becomes a fugitive, on the run for several years and for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. So Saul is fully aware that God has chosen David as the next king of Israel, and it was because of his rebellion, he knows, that it's been taken away from him, but he refuses to repent of his rebellious spirit. And his jealousy moves him to try to frustrate God's clear plan by killing the successor that God himself had chosen. 1 Samuel chapter 21, all the way through chapter 26, that section documents the years that Saul basically abandoned his kingly duties and instead directs all of his energies and the resources of the kingdom in a futile attempt to find David and to kill him. Now remember that part of the purpose for 1 Samuel is to be an apologetic for the change in dynasties. Remember what makes a king unique, a unique form of government? It's succession. Your son succeeds you. And yet you have Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, the next person to step into that role should have been one of his sons 
but instead it's David from the tribe of Judah. How do you explain that? Well, the writer wants us to know that David did not obtain the throne by stealth. There was no coup in Israel. He didn't manipulate or intimidate his way to power. And in fact, it seems that whenever opportunity knocked, and it knocked several times, David refused to answer. This underscores his integrity and his patience to wait on God's timing. He did absolutely nothing to remove Saul from power. But even more to the point, he respected him as God's appointment and sought to preserve his life. Think about the circumstances from David's perspective. It's really a remarkable story. In a short time, David's whole life had been turned upside down. He was once the favorite of the people, a leader of the Israel's army, the king's son-in-law, applauded on every hand. And now he's become a fugitive, an outlaw, hunted by the king. If you were to find yourself in that situation, you would, like David, think carefully through your options, and you only have basically two choices. One of those is to leave Israel and leave outside the land, but, and live outside the land, rather. But that would be somewhat risky because David, after all, had served as the leader of Israel's army and had at one time or other battled most of the surrounding countries. And so if he was recognized, he would undoubtedly be captured and killed. The other option, of course, was to remain in the country, to gather some people around you to help you to stay in sparsely populated areas where you would be difficult to find, to become a fugitive in the land of Israel. 1 Samuel 21 to 31 shows us that David tried both plans at various times. When he was outside the land, he was often caught in trouble. You remember that he had to feign madness to escape on one occasion. But these were all attempts to hide from Saul. But David was not completely confident in God through this period of time. What motivated David, especially when he left the country, was not his confidence in God, but a lack of confidence in God. And you can see this. In fact, this is an interesting passage. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21, we get a little glimpse into David's heart during this period. He was not a person unlike us. How would you think and react in that situation? In 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, we get to listen in as David has a conversation with himself. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Stop there. Specifically, David feared that he would not always escape Saul's attempts on his life. So, he goes on, verse, 21, verse 1 of 27, There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Now, what is David saying? He's saying, if I stay in Israel, I'm going to die. Is that true? Absolutely not, because what had God already promised David? That he would be Israel's next king. He had promised him with Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. Jonathan had assured him of this in chapter 23, verse 17. And even Saul himself was convinced that David would be the next king, according to chapter 24, verse 20. And so David loses confidence in the word of God and comes up with a better plan and leaves Israel. 
But even though David goes into the land of Israel's enemies in a, with a lack of faith, with a lack of confidence in God, as God always does in grace, he uses even David's sinful decisions for good. He does something remarkable because he not only preserves David and his men, he prospers them. And even more remarkable, he uses the time to accomplish two things that were very important to David's future. Number one, to defeat the border enemies in Israel. David would, from those surrounding countries, go in and attack the border towns where Israel's enemies were inflicting harm on Israel, and he would defeat them. And so when the time came for David to take the throne, he had already consolidated power in those surrounding areas. And also, of course, that made him popular with the people of Israel because he was taking care from outside of Israel of their enemies, and so his own reputation was building. So God used even his sinful decision, his lack of faith, to accomplish his purposes. What a great reminder of God's providence in our own lives. So that's Saul. Saul, at the end of Samuel, dies in battle. He and, and his son Jonathan are hung on the wall at Beit Shan. That brings us to David. Saul meets an ignominious end, and David becomes the next king of Israel. He rules Israel from 1011 to 971 B.C. David is from the tribe of Judah. He united the nation he makes Jerusalem the capital, and God gives him an eternal covenant in which he promised never to do to his dynasty what he had done to Saul's. David's leadership brought Israel to the place of the mightiest nation in the eastern Mediterranean world during his lifetime. David's life as king begins in 2 Samuel. Here's what we have in 2 Samuel. You have David's difficult rise to the throne in chapter 1 through 516. David's glorious reign in Jerusalem from 517 to 912. David's weak and sinful latter days in chapters 10 through 20. And reflections on David's reign, chapters 21 to 24. Now to really understand David's life, we need to look at a brief timeline because I think sometimes we don't really catch the flow of David's life. Here is what the scripture describes in a very brief form of what happened with David. He was anointed by Samuel to be king in 1 Samuel 16 at about 15 years old. He began serving almost immediately as a court musician and then occasionally returning home to be a shepherd of sheep. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will have part six for you on our next program, and we hope you join us then. And Tom, when you consider the totality of human history, it seems that there have been more dark periods and events than good ones, right? There certainly are, and yet, you know, that's not God's fault. It's not that God has brought this evil. 
Rather, it's an expression of human fallenness. It's an expression of what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam, as our representative, sinned and brought sin into the world. And it's what happens every day when we make those sinful choices. But the good news is that God is so wise and so good and so powerful that he can bring good even out of incredible darkness. God is at work to accomplish his saving purpose. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at one of the darkest periods in human history, certainly the darkest in Israel's history, and that is the period of the Judges. But out of that comes some beautiful stories of God's redemptive purpose at work and reminds us that the same thing is true in our lives today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.